Welcome, everybody, to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment. Visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds, at this point over 400 episodes, covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. So let's dive in. My name is Adam Homey. I'm your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Those who follow the show and those who have been following me are aware that I am the author of the international Amazon best-selling Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. One of the key themes of that book is how making little adjustments here and there can make big differences. In the end chapter, which is all about rephrasing your language, we see how sometimes literally just flipping words in a sentence can completely change the meaning and build a bridge where formerly there was a barrier. So today, in alignment with my principle of small changes, big differences, big improvements, big increases, we're going to discuss how to increase your margins with small changes that result in big results for your business. And I have somebody here today, you're going to absolutely love his presentation. He's got a lot of great stuff for us. You should see the show notes I have on this one. You guys, I'm telling you, get a pad of paper and two pens out because you are going to have aha moments. And I say two pens because if you, like me, have cats in the office, one of them's going to grab your pen and run off of it just when you got to write something down. So the man's name is Martin Holland. Let me just tell you briefly about him. He's an award-winning business coach. He has four decades of experience as a successful business owner and teacher, and he has taught over 300 small businesses how to increase profit and cash flow. Martin earned a BA degree from Hastings College, excuse me, Hastings College, and an MBA degree, I love that, I have an MBA too, from the University of Oklahoma. He co-hosts the Cash Flow contractor podcast and has written over 100 articles on small business topics for publications such as and this is very prestigious by the way i only know one other person who has achieved this the forbes coaches council martin resides in norton excuse me norman oklahoma please forgive my verbal typos here i'm just so excited about this with his wife diane and you can discover more about him at his website i will spell it out for you it's and Neil BC, if I'm pronouncing that right, A-N-N-E-A-L-B-C.com. If there's a difference in pronunciation, Martin's going to correct me in one second when I say, Martin Holland, come on in, the weather's fine. Well, thank you, sir. And you you uh, pronounced it correctly, AnilBC.com. Great. Here's what we do on Business Creators Radio. I don't know if you've had a chance to check us out before hopping on. Uh, I read off your official bio. Very impressive. Yes. Not even sure if I belong here uh, uh, in the in the presence of your luminariousness. And I'm not even sure that's a word. And luminariousness. Exactly. Well, if it's not a word, it is now. Anyway, what we like to do here is discover more about our guests as individuals, because I believe that we connect best with people. So tell us a bit about your journey and what's actually brought you to where you are, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community market and audience. Well, thank you for that opportunity. Uh, yes, I do have an MBA, but I don't think that's what uh, gave me the credibility uh, 
it's, it's certainly good information. I've been in business, small business for 46 years, um, have reorganized or started six businesses before becoming a business coach. Two of them failed and I sold the other four. And since becoming a business coach, I've helped start two other businesses. But after selling a business uh, 11 years ago now, I decided uh, I didn't want to do that again. It's uh, so much work to create a startup business where maybe the product isn't even known. You don't know if anybody's going to buy it. You're hiring people, raising capital, doing all the things that small business people do. I thought, what else could I do that might be a little more fun? And I thought, perhaps, just perhaps, 46 years of experience or 36 at the time might be useful to other people. And so I became a business coach and it takes a little while to figure out how to be a business coach. But uh, since I figured it out, it has been absolutely the most fun I've ever had. And I can't imagine ever quitting until some event uh, maybe tells me I'm better. But anyway, that's, that's uh, about who I am. Uh, live in Oklahoma. I'm, I'm sure that everybody who heard the name Norman, Oklahoma understands that's the home of the University of Oklahoma Sooners football team, but I won't, I won't bring that up. Oh, that's okay. You know, we've had a few <laughs> other uh, guests on Business Creators Radio who are from Oklahoma, so if they're still tuning in, maybe they know about it. But thank you for sharing that <laughs> with us. And, you know, coaching is a very unique discipline. I unfortunately see so many people who uh, declare themselves coaches. I myself uh, declared myself a business coach 11 years ago and then backed out of it six months later because uh, <laughs> I recognized that even I had more to discover with it. I now do coaching specifically helping people launch their business building podcasts. That's a something that I've had a lot of experience with getting this show going, uh, working with several other entrepreneurs to get their podcasts not only up and running, but into making revenue and also being involved with the launch of the first agency that truly and uniquely serves the entrepreneurial podcasting industry. I won't say the name, but most people know who I'm talking about. So uh, that's my little bit about coaching here. Now, you're going to tell us about small changes that can make a big difference in your revenue. I'm really looking forward to that topic. And there are a few foundational principles from your work that I'd like to get through first. That I think are going to be eye openers for some people. So this is going to go somewhat in order according to a checklist just to get us going. And uh, we may take some different turns we go along for the rest of the hour. But let's start with this. You identify something called the objective purpose of business. And uh, it's not sales. It's not no, profit. Sir. What is no, it? Sir. It's turning cash into more cash. And I make sure that I call that the objective purpose of business. But it is the objective purpose of business for every business that exists. There are lots of, for listeners who are altruistic and and like people, and there are lots of subjective reasons to be in business. But if you want to survive in business, there is only one objective purpose, and that's turning cash into more cash. And the reason I bring that up and mention that, and thank you, it's a chapter in the book, but thank you for, for bringing that up, is that I've worked with over 320 businesses directly, talked to many hundreds more in addition to my own. And a lot of times business owners uh, obsess about sales. Uh, if you're in a conversation with business owner, what do you, what the topic they want to talk about is a sale they just made. Or if you ask somebody, how big is your business? What's the size of your business? They're going to give you sales. And 
it's not irrelevant. It's a step in the process, but that's not what's important. Other business owners might talk to you about profit say, well, I had these sales, but oh, I made $15 million in profit last year. Hey, that's, that's one step closer to the objective purpose, but how's your cash doing? <laughs> well, glad you brought that up. So sales is not it. Profit is not it. There are steps, but unless you can convert profit into cash, you're in a world of hurt. And my ultimate mission as a business coach is to eliminate suffering from small business. And a lot of that suffering comes from a lack of cash. People working really hard, not having cash, even though they make sales and maybe even make profit. Well, let's look at two things here. Uh, many folks who listen to our show are familiar with uh, Bar Rescue and John Taffer. And if you watch the episodes where John Taffer goes in to rescue the bars, there may be a piece where right. he looks at their food costs or their rent or something like that to help them get some costs down to increase their margins. But the preponderance of his work is in two areas. Number one is resolving conflicts that are holding the business back. That's the psychological sure. side of it. And the practical side of it, which often is liberated once he can resolve the conflicts, is to increase cash flow. Because increasing cash flow quickly Absolutely. is what rescues the bar. And once you get the cash flow up, now the little margins on food costs aren't as big a deal. So you can work on those scientifically. And the co-owners of the bar are going to be fighting a lot less when they're worried about the electric bill. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And the other point I wanted to make is I, when I was in MBA school, I went to Duquesne University myself. Uh there's a professor, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, but I'm sure I'll remember it five minutes after we're done. I haven't spoken with him in a long time. He was one of my favorites, actually. But there's one place where he was everlastingly wrong. One day I was in his class and he shared the question, what is the primary purpose of a business? I raised my hand and I said, it's to make money. And he went off on a five minute tirade about how that was the stupidest thing he ever heard. Like I, it, it, he, he tried to compare it to saying that the purpose of living is to breathe. Well, uh, Martin, tell you what, let's do an experiment. Um, I know you're pretty much done presenting here. So we have about 48 minutes left. I want you to just hold your breath for 48 minutes and watch what happens. Right. Yeah live to breathe and yes a business is there to make money because right. all that altruistic stuff that business is supposed to be there for doesn't exist unless you're turning cash into yeah, more 100 you yeah. have to you have to take you have to have cash to meet your uh, uh, subjective goals whatever they are um if people who suggest that profit is bad i never did understand why so many people are against profit because even if you're a working person or you're somebody who lives off of largesse from the government or something, the government and everybody is a stakeholder in business. Taxes are nothing but their share of your profits. If you don't make a profit, I can't pay taxes. I can't grow. I can't do any of the things I need to do. So uh, as long as those profits turn to cash, as we said. Right. You, you uh, brought up two things real quickly, and I'd like to just put this in context. As a business coach, uh, I deal with what I call the four fundamentals of business, okay? And these are things that every business must deal with. No business can thrive without dealing, without being at least good in these four areas. You touched on some of them. 
One of them is guiding the business. That's leadership, that's having a vision, it's maintaining a culture, it's having objective goals, it's incentivizing people, holding people accountable, teamwork, it's all the things that are in leadership. The second one is, is getting the business. That's marketing and sales. So you have leadership, you have marketing and sales, you have doing the business, which is providing whatever it was you sold, service or product. And the fourth one is administering the business. And when I talk to business owners, most of them recognize what administration is and get a kick out of it. I describe administrative matters as all those things you had never even heard of when you started your business. That includes bookkeeping, accounting, financial statements, cash flow, IT, HR, regulatory compliance, dealing with OSHA, and the list could go insurance, it can go on and on. What we're kind of talking about today or where I'm going to be, uh, if that's what you want, but to direct the small changes is administration and in particular financial reports provide information to guide decisions in all four areas of the business. And once you have that good information, you can start making the small changes because you realize how effective they will be. Yeah, let's mix this up a little bit because okay. you wanted us to, if we had time, discuss how to use that financial information to right. make the better decisions and more money. So since we're there, let's go a little bit deeper into that. Okay. Um, well, the way I do it, when when I talk before groups, if, if I say, hey, guys, I'm at a conference. I've got 150 people sitting out there. I go, hey. You guys come on in here. We're going to talk about bookkeeping. Well, the people who are in there were forced to be in there. And even then their hands go beneath their desk and they start texting because nobody wants to talk about accounting or bookkeeping. So the way I counter that is I say, hey, guys and gals, if you could increase your gross profit margins by 1%, your net profit will go up 15%. Now they're looking at me. I say, hey, did you know? that the average business, if you increased your sales by 17%, would double your net profit. Now they're looking at me again and saying, say what? I said, hey guys, ladies, did you know that if you increased your prices 10% for the average business in the US, you could lose 22% of your customers before it cost you a nickel in gross profit or net profit. Now I have their attention and they say, well, how do, how do you know that? And is that true for my business? And I said, well, we've got to look at your books. And these are the kinds of things. If I tell you that 1% increase in gross profit margin, like from 40% to 41%, would increase your profit, your net profit by 15%, could you do it? Hell yeah. Pardon my French. They go, heck yeah, I can do that. Well, I, now would say, I would use another, I'd use another word, but uh, <laughs> I, but I promise to be nice. Go ahead. <laughs> well, that's that's the point where I start to get get their interest, and I say, guys, everybody in the world can improve one percent, absolutely, period. And when I'm working with clients, I might be working with contractors or retailers or doctors. I mean, I have all attorneys. I have all these. Can we get our gross profit margins up one percent? because now we see that it's worth it. Net profit will go up 15%. Can we get it up 1%? Absolutely. And not only can we get 1% better today, we can get another 1% better next week. And so that's where the, and, and we might get into specifics of how do you do that? Um, well, it varies by industry, but anybody listening, if they thought, where am I wasting 1% of my variable cost, my cost of goods sold, where am I doing that? We can always find it. 
and we can find it again. And all of a sudden, everybody's going down a different railroad track, heading toward prosperity, and they're earning greater margins, and they're making more money and converting more to cash. And all of a sudden, things have changed. I have a builder client here who a couple of years ago, uh, we set out, there's a story in my book about it, how to build houses for free. And this company builds about 60 custom houses a year. And we found a way to improve this gross profit margins from 10% to 13%. That was the same. He made the same money off of increasing his margins as building and selling 18 homes in his marketplace. And I asked people, which would you rather do? Build and sell 18 homes or get 3% better? And of course, I say then, how about doing both? How about building more homes and getting better? And there's a multiplier effect that shows up. And here's, here's why people are usually not aware of it. I think my experience shows that most business owners go to work on the first day of the month and they think they're making a little money that day. And they think their suppliers making a little money, employees making a little money, landlords making a little money. Everybody's making a little money every day. That is fundamentally, absolutely, positively untrue. You do not make money in your business until you have earned enough gross profit to break even. So before break even, which is everybody's heard the word, but it, maybe it's a little abstract concept, but it's when you've earned enough to completely pay all your overhead. Before right. you've done that, you make nothing. After you've done that, you all the gross profit is yours. It, it all goes to the bottom line. And the reason that's important that everybody know where their break even point is, one reason it's important, is that if you don't break even until the 29th of the month, you had better not go fishing on the 30th because that's your profit day. And it, then it all resets again at the beginning. All your expenses reset at the beginning of the next month and you have to do it again. Well, fundamentally understanding those things is critical to how you behave and how you act. And yes, they are little things. Getting 1% better, knowing what your break even in is, paying attention to it. Once you pay attention to it, it will improve. Even if you don't know any sophisticated things to do, the mere act of paying attention to margins and break even, I've just seen it too many times to say that it's anything less than true. Just the mere fact that you pay attention to it will improve it. And jumping back real quickly to, to what you said before we started on this line of talk was, and the, the title of my book is The Profit Problem. They say I make money, so why don't I have any? If you make money, but you don't have any, and that's the vast majority of, uh, of businesses I've encountered, there are only three reasons, and they are simple things to pay attention to. It's not all abstract. There are only three reasons that if you make a profit and don't have any cash, that you don't have cash. The first one is you haven't been paid yet. So everybody knows what accounts receivable are, or most people do, the bane of our existence. But that's yep. the first reason. You made a profit, but I don't have any money because I lent my profit to my customers to buy goods or services from me. The second reason is you already spent the money either repaying debt or buying assets. Okay, so the first one is you haven't been paid. The second one, you already spent the money. Or the third reason is you took it. And by that, I mean you took it out as draws, which don't affect your uh, profit loss statement. That's it. If you have listeners out there and they're suffering from cash flow problems, it's one or a combination of those three reasons. And the good thing about it is once you've identified what the problem is, you can fix it 
or at least set to work to fix it, but you have a clear objective. So simplification um, of that chronic problem is a huge first step for most of the businesses I work with. Wow. Uh, you know, Sometimes I have, uh, and, and all the guests on Business Creators Radio are awesome. We haven't never had one. We've never had one. It wasn't. Some of them I have to, it almost feels like I'm pulling teeth because they give very short answers. And I try and say something to stoke the flame so that they'll just go off. And uh, one of my talents, one of my superpowers is pulling the passion out of somebody who's doing a Q&A session with me. Then I have people like Martin Holland, where I ask one question, and he answers the next four I was planning to ask. <laughs> you make it easy. So well, uh, we're going to we're gonna get to have a little bit of fun on this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, let me let me throw out one more that you didn't ask. Oh, please <laughs> um, do. When please we talk do. about when we talk about this concept of break even, most people think of correctly that it's how much do I have to sell before I've paid all my expenses. It's when profit and loss both equal zero. But break even is hugely more powerful tool for business owners than that. And I won't get into why it works right now, but I'm going to ask you a question, a rhetorical question. Why is it that people are reluctant to raise their prices? Because uh, there, I've heard many answers to this, but I'll tell you the one that comes up most often with my clients. They're afraid that existing clients will quit. There you go. And that other clients who otherwise might have come on board will say, eh, but your competitor does it for your old price. Right. And then there's right. a, and then there's a third one, which is, and this actually does come up. Well, six months ago, you said it was going to be X, and now you want Y for the exact same thing? How is that fair? To which I say, put an expiration clause in your estimates. Well, you know, you are exactly congruent. I've never heard, and I've heard of you, you even, in my mind, express the same thing three different ways. And they don't want to raise their prices because they're scared of losing customers. That, and that's the answer I hear all the time. And I said, right. that's great. So wouldn't it be useful to know how many customers you could lose before it affected your profitability to know in advance and right. say, yeah. Now, the reason I do that is to give people courage to raise prices. What in fact happens is they don't lose customers. But that's the 10% I was talking about a minute ago. If you're an average company in the United States and you raise your prices 10%, you can lose 22% of your business before it affects your profitability. Okay. Yeah. Now the flip side of that um, is why do people discount their prices? The flip side is the flip answer is they want to attract more business. And I say to people, wouldn't it be useful to understand how much more business you had to raise just to pay for the discounts? And for the same companies I've just talked about, if they did a 20% dis price discount, they would have to increase their sales 133%. In other words, two and a third times more to make the same profit. When people have clarity on those two points, it guides their decisions. First, they have the courage to raise their prices. And I, I, I don't even know if we have time to talk about the benefits of raising prices because it goes straight to the bottom line. And two, instead of giving a price discount as a, uh, as a sales promotion, they'll find some other way to do it. And there are, are lots of other ways 
most people who discount the prices just use it as a default marketing strategy. Couldn't think of anything else. Well, we'll have a sale. Um, now, a lot of, a lot of very large companies uh, who, who do that, they know their numbers and they're, they're working a whole bunch of magic back there. But a lot of small businesses just drop their prices. And once they understand, and break-even is the tool that, tells, that gives those uh, statistics I just gave you, once they realize they think, they get the courage and they get the judgment not to discount and the courage to raise prices. So again, you didn't ask that, but that kind of information comes from having good accounting, good bookkeeping, and the knowledge to use the reports that come from it. And let me just stress real quickly, I don't promote that any of my business owner clients or friends become accountants or bookkeepers. I don't want that. They just need to know what good books look like, and then they need to know how to use the information that the books provide. There are a few things that uh, have bubbled up for me, and I've been taking some notes here. Our listeners know that not only am I the host, I'm also the number one student in the front row looking for the slight edge in my business. In fact, one of the reasons I encourage all entrepreneurs to create their own podcasts, uh, and I'm going to say this candidly, is if there's somebody out there whose brain you want to pick and you contact them saying, hey, is there any chance I could pick your brain? And they tell you to go F yourself. Well, yeah, you brought that on. <laughs> However, if you come to them and say something like, hey, Martin, I saw your post on LinkedIn the other day and I thought that was really cool. Tell you what, this is something my listeners on my podcast are interested in. Would you like to come on my show? Bet you get a lot of conversations and I bet right. you a lot of people bring their really good stuff. Just like Martin here, you're bringing some really good stuff to us. A lot of things for us to think about. Now, here's a point that I make to people all the time. I have a, I have a CPA for my business. I've, right. I've been working with the same CPA for 17 years. Even when I moved across three time zones from Pennsylvania to Nevada, I saw no reason to switch because A, he and I have a have a, a shorthand and a really good relationship. And B, he was licensed in Nevada. So there's no reason to because he had other clients in Nevada. So there's no reason to change. Uh, great guy. His name's Dean Ponterio, P-O-N-T-E-R-I-O. Uh, he owes me cigars because I mentioned his name. <laughs> and uh, he listens to the show, so he's probably laughing right now. Um, and uh, he knows that he has three basic things I look for him to assist me with. Uh, number one is tax planning, which is different as financial minds know from simply making sure you pay your taxes. Tax planning is something different. That's Absolutely. number one. And, and he's really good at that. Number two is to make sure that my business is compliant with all relevant federal, state, and local obligations for taxation. And number three, to do the damn bare minimum of that that we absolutely have to. Uh, so those so those are the three roles, and uh, he does them exceptionally well. So I, however, do one thing myself that I actually right now have the luxury of doing because I have a small business, is I enter my own stuff into QuickBooks, and people are going to stand and say, wait a minute, and you call yourself leveraged? What the <laughs> hell kind of entrepreneur are you doing loading your stuff into QuickBooks? Well, A, it's a very simple business model. It really doesn't take long. Right. B, and this is key, this gives me a view of my income and my outgo that I'm not going to get from seeing a pie chart because it's visceral, it's real, it's day-to-day, uh, there's cause and effect, there are timelines, there are consequences. So whenever I, and I usually do it like every other month because it takes me, if I can put one hour into it every two months, that's about all it needs. 
And while I'm doing it, I have a pad of paper and two pens next to me because A, my cat will steal one of the pens and Princess <laughs> Alessandra's here right now trying to get my pens. And B, uh, I will come up with insights, ideas and inspirations just from seeing those numbers, things that we may need to restructure, terminate, cancel, and also the opportunities that emerge once we reposition re re the cash. So I've actually come up with some of my greatest business innovations because I did the road task of bookkeeping because it allowed me to see, okay, well, if I move this and I restructure this, now I have a big opening where I can do this and here is where cash flow is going to happen. That principle does not apply to everybody. And I hope and expect that my business will soon be big enough that that will not be a feasible occupation for me anymore. But until such time, it works pretty good for me. Well, Adam, you're, you're bringing up a, a core topic in my book. And let me be really clear. I love CPAs. I love their minds. I mean, yes. I know a lot of people don't, but I, but I do. Discipline and mindset and so on. But CPAs come in different. Well, let me say it this way. Most small businesses in the United States, and there are 30.2 million of them, and I kind of half in jest say about 30.2 million of them do not have books adequate for making decisions about the future. They just don't. I've seen right. enough to make a blanket statement. Most books, when they keep them, or are they made up later on, are looking rearward. What do I owe in tax? How much money did I make? Now, you're doing some planning and so on with your taxes, but you're still looking to the past. Fine. And that's what most accountants do. What I'm interested in and what I want my business clients to know is how can I use that information to make decisions about the future? The past has already passed and there's no less worthwhile information than that that begins with the phrase, what you should have done was. I don't wanna hear that. I want to look to the future. Books are arranged a little bit differently to enable you to look to the future. They enable you to know your margins clearly, accurately, and byproduct and so on. They allow you to know break-even. They allow you to forecast cash. There are so that, well, if I can, let me tell a story real quickly. Please. A number of years ago, uh, probably three or four years ago, a guy called me in February and I could tell he was distraught. I mean, his voice was literally quivering. So as I talked to him, he had started a business the prior July with $30,000 in savings, small, small business. But by February, so seven months later, he's selling $100,000 a month. That's a big success story, right? Go from zero to a rate of over a million a year in seven months. Great success. No, this guy was on, he wasn't suicidal, but we'll say rhetorically, he was suicidal. He was desperate. What happened was he was completely out of cash. We, we can say why, but it involved inventory receivables. Everybody was on his case. His customers were mad because he couldn't get the products shipped to him and couldn't, therefore couldn't ship to them. Just all this stuff going on. And it was failure to plan for the inevitable. If he had known how to forecast cash, and using some pretty rudimentary methods, not, not real fancy, you know, huge stuff. If he'd had known how to forecast cash, he would have absolutely known that in his industry and in his location, he could not support $100,000 worth of sales per month on a $30,000 initial investment. He would have known that. Now, he could have done things differently 
and he would have said, oh, it's really hard for me to not offer competitive terms or not to have inventory. Well, you're going to go broke anyway, so you might as well go broke with a way that, and he wouldn't go broke, uh, a way that would allow you to compete and survive. Instead, through ignorance, he hit the wall. We got him an SBA loan and we did some things, but he's no longer in business. He just totally stressed out. So it is possible. It's not possible to know the future, but we are not condemned to stumble into oblivion. But you have to have good information provided by good bookkeeping and the knowledge to use it. You don't have to be an accountant. You don't have to be a bookkeeper to do it. You don't need an MBA. You don't need a BA. You just need some few fundamental concepts. And you can look forward and say, huh, good idea, huh, bad idea. And make informed decisions rather than just purely gut instinct decisions. And just so that it don't sound like I'm insulting people, there are lots of business owners who do pretty well based on their gut because they have good judgment. Even they could do so much better if they had the information. And so that's that's my passion out of the, all those four areas. I work with all of them. And at any given time, uh, there's something, maybe it's a leadership issue, maybe it's a sales and marketing issue, maybe it's a production issue. There's something that's more important than anything else that I have to work on with my clients. But always, every case I've ever encountered, understanding how to use financial information in small business to make decisions about the future is critical. And it's all, I'm, I'm trying to think if I can ever think of an example of anybody who knew how to do it, but it's just always missing. And the revelation, I have a little epigraph in my book and it said, it must have felt like Paul did when he arrived at Damascus. So he was blind, but now he can see. You get that information and now you can see. And it's just life-changing and it's, it's not, Brain dead simple, but it's not hard either. Anybody who wants to know can do it. Anybody. So anyway, I'm going to get off my hard horse here. But You know, uh, we're making so much progress here that uh, there's something I don't get to do nearly as often on my show as I'd like to is, uh, but every so often, I like to run one of my own concepts by a subject matter okay. expert and give you <laughs> to tell me if I'm on base, if I'm off base, if there's something else I need to think about. So okay. this will take a minute or two. Let me just explain it. Uh, have you ever seen somebody post something in a discussion forum or on their social media wall, a question in the form of, if somebody gave you $100,000, what would you, how would you use it to market and grow your business? Have you ever right. seen that question? All right. Well, yeah. Okay. So here's how, here's how I answer it. And there's a several step process. Step one is, okay, I got $100,000 here. So probably means that uh, depending on uh, you know, accounting skill or what applicable laws there, I actually have somewhere between 70,000 or 80,000 or maybe 90,000, who knows, just depending on how we can position it through tax planning rather than tax compliance, uh, big difference between those two terms. So now I know I have most of that money. My very first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pay off all the um, all the recurring debts, like all the business credit cards. I'm going to set reset the line of credit to zero. Uh, I'm going to do those things where big portions or noticeable portions of our month, monthly cash flow is going straight to debt service and turn those off. So not only am I going to be restoring that cash flow, making it come straight to me, but I'm also excusing myself from interest payments. So now we're already multiplying incoming revenue. 
That's sure. number one. Step two is, you know, since I, you know, do the QuickBooks entries, I know all this stuff that I'm, you know, doing every month. In fact, part of the reason that uh, I tolerate doing that right now is because 70 to 80% of the stuff I enter in QuickBooks is the same damn thing every month. I mean, I, I rec sometimes I recognize them by the dollar amounts rather than by the names. <laughs> so if I'm doing that every month, that means I can look at this time we're in at right now and say, there's about a 90 to 100% chance I'm going to need that solution for another year. So let me see if they have an annual option. Oh, they do? Right. And I save 15%? Cool. Pay annual, pay annual, pay annual, pay annual, pay annual. Now I've saved myself 10% over cash flow that was going to be sunk anyway, which now puts 10% back into my column. So at this point, without having had to raise prices, without having had to seek out another customer, without having had to do any use my money to make money type strategy whatsoever, I probably still have a little bit of that $100,000 left, which I can now put into a rainy day fund or in my my bank account has at least this much in it so I can sleep well at night account, that sort of thing. I now have all kinds of extra money for marketing because look at all the additional cash flow I just freed up for my business without making any changes to what was coming in. Now, right. somebody so now somebody saw me post that in a, in a thread and they decided to take issue with it uh, and criticize it and say, I said for marketing. So we need to hear about, we need to hear about <laughs> social media advertising, list acquisition, investment in courses. And I said, nice try baiting me, but my answer still holds because there is not going to be any social media marketing, list acquisition, going to conferences, investing in courses until I have more cash flow to do it. So I'm still right and you're wrong. <laughs> So uh, that was my that was my very strong answer to it. Somebody thought they were going to call me out and make me quiver, which yeah, right. Uh, no, that doesn't so sound like it's going to happen to a Vegas guy. But now I want to get your thoughts on it. Uh, am I right? Am I on base? Off well, base? Am I missing my, something? Is there an improvement? What are we doing here? No, if we're talking specifically about your company, we have to say you're probably right. Uh, I'm going to give you the uh, the bailout answer, and I would say it depends. Yeah. Um, because what are the other opportunities? I am not against debt. Dave Ramsey says debt never justifies the risk. And right. Shakespeare said neither a borrower nor lender be, you know, loan death off lose both self and friend. So there are some pretty heavy hitters against all debt, but the world would not yeah. even exist as we know it without it. Because uh, somebody turned a farm into capital to grow corn and that's how it all starts. So my answer would be, would, would be this. I would have to analyze your debt service against your cash flow right. and see what opportunities you had that could make a lot of money. Okay. So I would have to say, I would have to do some analysis. And before yes. all of that, I actually have, and you, you did say this toward the end, but I would have a cash reserve. Now, if, if you don't make enough profit to pay your debt, then you, then you're, you're going to die. You have to earn enough profit, nominal profit, whether you've been paid or not, to pay all your debt service. You just have to do that. Otherwise, you're going away. But you need to know that. And that takes good books. <laughs> but beyond that, one of the, I have a whole chapter in my book about this, the universal cure for what ails you. I just, this is just true. It's true of me. It's true of my wife and her business and every client I got. 
depending on the size of your business. But if you have 50,000 or 100,000, or depending, if you're a much larger business, 50 million of cash in reserve, your life is completely different. And if, if, I, if the alternative was to have no debt and no cash or cash and some debt, I'm going to go with the cash and some debt. It changes. I mean, it changes everything. I mean, I, I, I've got a whole list of, of the reasons. I, I could give you actual reasons that having cash changes your life. But that would be my one caveat, and I think you've covered it, um, is that, yeah, you're making margins by not spending expense. Uh, but I would always want a cash reserve uh, sufficient to allow me to sleep. And I'll just throw out a number. I'll say whatever it takes to run your company for three months at a bare minimum. Yeah. As I cash think that's smart in the bank. Yeah. I think, I think you're absolutely right about that. And then, and you caught my own caveat, which is uh, part of it would be creating a reserve fund or yes. enhancing my reserve fund. You also probably heard me say that uh, step one is zero out, zero out all the credit cards and yep. take the line of credit balance back to zero. So that in itself, right there in step one, because you think all those all those credit cards, the line of credit, those are reserves. Yep. And, so now, and so now you're correct. In step one, even before I even got to really thinking too deep about this, I'm opening up reserves at the same time I'm freeing cash flow. And then the other piece I didn't mention uh, because I wasn't thinking of it is let's say somebody gave me $100,000 and said, we well, have to use this for your marketing. So all you can use <laughs> on is ads and, and courses and JVs and stuff like that. Okay. So let's say I take the $100,000 and I blow it. And I spend it on all that stuff and it doesn't work. Now I still have all the problems I had beforehand. Right. Whereas now, since I loosened up all kinds of cash flow, if at first I don't succeed, I have more money coming. I can try again. Well, you know, you're, you're right back into uh, good books and form good marketing too. Yeah. If you, if you poke a hundred thousand dollars into an untried strategy uh, and it goes away, you've really shafted yourself. Yeah. But if you know what your client acquisition cost is, customer acquisition cost is, uh, if you know what your margins are on on that, uh, if you know the lifetime and or maybe the transactional value of a client or a customer, you can do some math and say, you know what, I'm going to dribble this out and we're going to watch it. And again, it goes back to the things that get managed to get better, even if you're not really sophisticated in it. You start paying attention to my acquisition cost and what's my... And, you know, in this day and age with the Internet, by the way, tell people how old I am. I, I kid the young guys that work around. When I started working in 1974, we didn't have copiers. Right. Yeah. They, they existed because big companies in New York had them. But and Xerox was around, but we didn't have copiers. So we've come a long way and you get a you get a, a unique visits to your website kind of uh, uh, data that people give you. And that's important and useful data, but I want to know how much of my marketing turned to cash to help pay that bill for the marketing and what was the excess and double down on the things that work and get shut of the things that don't work. And yeah. taking it back to accounting and finance, well, not about bookkeeping and finance, that's where you get that information. And it's not okay to just guess. You need to know. Correct. Correct. And uh, yeah, when you, and we look at what I, shared with all of this about uh you know, the whole thing of 
well, uh, well, you can only use it for marketing. <laughs> you have to use it for ads and courses and JVs and all, all that sort of thing. Well, uh, you know that there, there seem, the answers to that seem to have two things. And when people go to the discussion threads and they give the quote unquote right answers, which is uh, basically they one up themselves coming up with bigger and bigger numbers of how much money they're going to beg Facebook to allow them to accept to allow them to give them to run their ads. It's like, wow, okay. Uh, you know how relatively effective that actually is, and what about all the other advertising networks? Uh, do you uh, do you uh, and and where are you positioning these ads? Uh, would it make possibly make more sense to run a podcast and insert ads into your episodes? Because there are also statistics that show that podcast listeners have a higher rate of discovering and becoming loyal to brands that they heard about on a podcast episode as opposed right. to the metrics for seeing something fly by in their newsfeed. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, we can get into marketing as a whole. Uh, I love it, but it's a whole, it's a whole separate one of those four major areas, guide, get, do, and administer. Yeah. But what you're hearing these guys talking, the number one selling book, if I'm correct, book, genre, uh, business book genre is marketing stuff. It's how to attract leads and, it's marketing, marketing. And I think one of the reasons for that is it's that emphasis back on sales. You do need sales. You do need sales. But I'd rather have one highly profitable sale than hundreds of marginally profitable or sales at which I lose that I don't build any higher purpose, you know, customer loyalty, following all those things. And marketing seems to be compared to, to my book, which is about using financial statements. People just gravitate toward it. They love it. But that's that yeah. emphasis that that's not the purpose of business to make sales. Yes, you have to have sales. Mm -hmm. I want to go after those sales where I build integrity, lifetime value of a customer. I actually make margins. They're not buying from me because of price. They're buying from me because of uh, my, you know, my unique selling proposition, what I offer them other than just price and then take it all the way down and ultimately convert it to cash because they're going to pay me and they're going to pay me on time. So I think that's a little bit of the, I mean, that was the topic of, of the question the guy asked. So it's fair enough that that's where it was. But I see a lot more of those than I do of people who are saying, wait a minute, let's look at this thing holistically. How can I generate the most efficient, highest profit? And obviously, obviously without harming people or doing wrong or cheating or stealing any of that. But yeah. how can I do this by offering the most value to people that they appreciate and I can earn profits on. Yeah. And, and that's where I keep going back to accounting and, and bookkeeping financial information informs those. It tells you where to place your effort. And in many instances, it tells you what you need to do to improve. Yeah. Uh, Screw it. Let's do it is a title of a book by <laughs> Richard Branson. Um, ah, I've read yeah. it. I think, I think it's a great book. Um, I think that in terms of help, if helping you to build courage for what you're doing, I think it's a great philosophy, uh, along with his quote, um, if a great opportunity presents, and I'm paraphrasing, if a great opportunity right. presents itself, say yes, and then figure out how to do it later. Okay, that's all well and good. And there may be room for that. Now, I'm going to give an example of something, because I think you touch on a very important point when it comes to getting educated, which is to understand that there's not necessarily one holy grail. And there's a reason why when you go to school, you attend several different classes with several different teachers that approach substantially the same thing in different ways, because there's a holistic picture. So I'm going to give 
an example of something that uh, is going to make people uh, sit up and say, whoa, is this about to go political? No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> back in the 1980s, there was this, uh, there was this guy uh, who had uh, built a couple hotels and did some real estate stuff, uh, a little known man named Donald J. Trump. And he wrote this book called The Art of the Deal. Mm -hmm. I've read the book 30 or 40 times. Now, anybody who's read the book and actually paid attention as they were reading the pages know that there is no place in that book that says, in this chapter, I'm going to walk you through step-by-step -step how to make a deal. It doesn't exist. The entire book is a collection of Trump's stories and recollections about the circumstances surrounding deals he made. For example, when he was uh, looking to make a deal with Holiday Inn, and uh, I think it was Holiday Inn, or it might have been some other organization, and he had some land that he was looking to sell them. Uh, the deal wasn't moving fast enough, so he hired, uh, he hired uh, bulldozers to move dirt from one end of the property to the other. And the reason he did that was to signal that a deal was happening and construction started. So you better get you better get off your better ass here. here. <laughs> exactly. So that was so that was so what we discovered, and we've seen that in Trump not only in business, but also in politics and statesmanship, is his emphasis on the power of symbolism and representation. Oh, yeah to create a narrative, which he is, an, he is, to me, he's one of the undisputed masters of, whether you love him or you hate him. And the fact that you probably do either love him or hate him is evidence of how skilled he is. Now, if you want to learn about deal making from Trump, you can't just read his book. Uh, there's another book that you should read with it. And unfortunately, I don't have the title of it right in front of me, but I know it's in the other room on my bookshelf because I've read it too. It's by the attorney that he worked with during that period who helped him negotiate a lot of his deals, where now you get into some of the fundamentals of negotiating and deal making. Put those two together, now you have the picture. So it's one thing to say, uh, how would you spend $100,000 if it was given to you for marketing? And you're gonna come up with several different answers and you use the key phrase, Martin, it depends. Every <laughs> well, you know, something, uh, I've never met either Richard Branson or Donald Trump, and certainly where they are now. Yeah. Those guys, when you're starting a new venture, particularly a paradigm shifting venture, uh, you know, the art of the deal, those are all up there in the leadership, the culture and the get it done kind of stuff. Right. Those guys now, they got teams sitting back there doing the numbers and saying, you know what? If this thing goes, it'll blow the lid off everything. And here's what it's worth. There's some, And there's somebody back there working some numbers. Richard Branson, well, I, let's just, I don't know that for a fact, but I strongly suspect it. <laughs> somebody's crunching some numbers and they're going, man, this is big risk, but boy, is it big time. Uh, and then most of the people I deal with are not, I mean, they're people maybe starting new businesses, but I don't have anybody developing the next iPhone uh, right. as a client. So they're just literally sitting. I mean, there's so much to it. How do you differentiate yourself and all those? But it all begins with informed decisions. And if I could do this, then I can get that. Or if I decide I'm going to be real selective in my clients and I'm going to have to raise my margins by 20%, I'm going to lose a lot of clients. But, hey, I can lose 90% of them and still make more money. And I only have to work 10% as hard. So good financial statements, even to the big risk takers, even if they're all pro forma, forward-looking, future-looking, they still inform people. Those, I, I strongly believe those guys know 
what's at stake uh, in terms of numbers. They don't know if that's what's going to happen, but they know, hey, if we do this, then this could happen. Let's go for it. Or even though Richard Branson said, screw it, let's do it. I'll bet you, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'll bet you there's been a lot of things go, nah, screw it. I'm not doing that. <laughs> the yeah. risk reward's not right. Now, we don't know about those because he didn't do them. But, uh, and I'm sure there's probably an island somewhere that Trump didn't turn into a golf course, even though he could have because it was in the wrong place or the wrong winds or hurricanes certainly. or something. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, he passed up on a lot of things. Uh, uh, what people also tend to forget about him is he uh, he bowed out of three presidential races before he finally went for it. I did not know that. Well, uh, in 1987, one of the uh, uns not really spoken reasons for launching the R of the Deal is he had the presidential buck. In fact, he did some speeches after the book came out uh, to test the waters in that direction. He decided not to go with it. In 2000, he campaigned in the primaries for the Reform Party, and then he bailed out because he, uh, in his statement, he said he did not like the direction the Reform Party was going in. It wasn't something he could pursue any further. The statement's available online if anybody wants to read it. In 2012, uh, when all of a sudden he was, uh, there, he was, there was big buzz about him, uh, running in, uh, for president as a Republican. And then he gave the statement. It's like, no, I'm not going to run for president. I'm going to do another season of the apprentice. He had to remind everybody that he was never actually a candidate. All he did was step in, announce his interest in it and test the polls. And people actually became convinced he was a candidate because he started leading some polls. All, well, you know, all, it was a it was a marketing experiment, uh, basically, uh, for something that he was thinking about maybe doing someday, maybe that cycle or the next cycle. And he looked at it and he said, "Screw it, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do the Apprentice instead." Man, I, I tell you, there have been a lot of presidents that I liked, and there have been a lot of presidents I haven't liked. But in and I almost pains me to say it, but every one of them is an exceptional person. Yes. Uh, Good, bad. I mean, whatever your opinion is, and I didn't say which way for either like or dislike, but correct. You can't do it unless you're exceptional in in something, and it just the uh, it's staggering to think what goes through somebody's mind when they said, "You know, I'm gonna be the president," and why anybody would want to do that, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, one one of my one of my favorite things to study is presidential history. I've read biographies of all 44 people who have served as president of the wow. United States. And you discover these are indeed some exceptional, uh, outstanding, uh, and by outstanding, sometimes I mean totally just don't fit into any puzzle type individuals to the point where they can be puzzling. Uh, and some of the things that go through their mind and some of the decisions they make will leave your head spinning. And at the same, yes, same things that make them interesting euphemistically figures are the same factors that allow them to rise to that level because it helped them break out of certain paradigms that hold back others. Right. Yes, sir. And uh, I, again, I don't know why anybody would choose to do that. I, uh, I, that was actually my childhood dream to become president of the United States. Uh, it's I, not I, too late. I, it's not too late. Uh, right now, my inclination, however, is to be the person who owns the president's. <laughs> there you go there you go well that's a, and that and that's a conversation for another time and yeah that's uh, you know, another show yeah what's great what's great about uh uh business creators radio show and our listeners know this when you tune in 
if we've achieved our goal, and I really think we have today, you as a listener, those who are listening today, either live or um, through any of our syndication networks, know that we invite you to sit in on this as if you are um, observing a private mastermind session. We don't do uh, interrogation style Q&A and we do allow things to flow sometimes naturally as they did. Um, I didn't think we were going to be talking about Branson and Trump or anything when we got into this, but it flowed naturally. I didn't think I was in this, Martin, I didn't think I was going to show you my example of what would you do if you got $100,000, but it came out as a result of how our conversation was flowing. Unfortunately, we are at the point where uh, the people who time me are tapping their watches. So we do have to draw a beat on this one. Now, we may have you back in the future because I think there is more. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we may have some people on the edge of their seats right now who recognize that there is so much they still need to discover about how to increase their margins by making small changes that bring big results. Or maybe they get it and they're looking for somebody to help guide them through it. So how does somebody connect with you and where they have to look forward to when they do? Well, the uh, the thing, the first connection might be to, to get my book, which is called The Profit Problem. They say I make money, so why don't I have any? Right. Um, and that, I have a website for the book called theprofitproblem.com. Yep. Um, my business coaching uh, is at anealbc.com, A-N-N-E-A-L-B-C.com. People ask where that name comes, and it's a case of me being uh, poor judgment in marketing. I thought it was clever, but annealing in industrial uh, in industry is a process of reducing stress and increasing strength. And a lot of my clients early on were manufacturers. They knew what it was. Now that I'm out in the more general public, people don't. But that's my name, annealbc, annealbusinesscoaching.com. And I'd love to hear from anybody. I'll answer any questions. Martin at anealbc.com. Love to connect. Uh, love to have people sign up for my articles. And uh, and if I can help in any way, that's my mission in life. It really is. If I can make money doing that, it's even better. But exactly. if I can help somebody, that, that's what makes me that's what makes me tick. All right. And there you have it. So Martin Holland, uh, author of The Profit Problem, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Well, thank you very much, Adam. That's your enthusiasm shows through too. And I love it. All right. All right. So for our listeners, we trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find this episode and, as I said, hundreds more. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to your favorite network so you get our upcoming fresh episodes delivered straight to you and we continue this conversation. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.